like to say what a pleasure it is to be with you again. Um, I caught you in India. Yes, we caught each other in India. And uh, before that, had the opportunity years ago to have a, uh, a dialogue at the synagogue. Um, and uh, it is remarkable everything you have done in the interim, as it was everything you had done before. Uh, I was listening to the, to the parade of influentials, and all I want to say is it's much more impressive to be among the most influential people in India, because there are only about 15 Jews, but there are a billion, <laughs> a billion Indians. So to be among the 50 most influential people in India really is a, an achievement worth noting. Um, what strikes me, and the first thing that I want to ask you about before I get into specifics, is the enormous range of the things that you are both passionate about and influence that go from, even though all the source may be internal, but they're very much about the world, about the environment, about human flourishing, about poverty, about all the, what we think of as social causes and therefore in some sense external, but primarily of course your life is about the internal life. So, <laughs> Can you tell us how it is, first, that you have such a range, and second, is there anything that you say no to? <laughs> well, uh, I have no many passions. Uh, my passion is uh, very one-pointed. My passion is for life and everything related to life. Till now, I have not done anything not related to life. So, it's very unifocus, just life. When you handle life, there are many aspects. Different people are in, engaged with life in different ways. So, you inevitably you get engaged with all that. Do I say no to anything? Oh, Time and uh, resource makes me say no to many things. <laughs> Unfortunately, I would not like to say no to anything, but time and resources make you say no to many things that you would like to do. What would you like to do? My thing is just this, we as a generation of people, in many ways or in every way, we are the most empowered generation ever. Well, just hundred years ago, with the same capabilities like all the ladies are focusing their uh, phones on me, if they had just this one thing hundred years ago, 
people would think you are superhuman, yes or no? Hello? If you had the same phone hundred years ago, you could claim that I am a superhuman being, you could claim you are the messenger or himself, people would have believed. Because that is how empowered we are. So when there is such an empowerment, my intention is, this is our time on this planet. We must make this the best time ever because we are empowered like no other generation before. Our survival is better organized than ever before. If we don't make this happen, I think it's a crime. Just to avoid the crime, doing whatever I can <laughs> We spoke about the fact earlier um, that that same empowerment is not only an empowerment for good, that the same force of technology enables people to have a tremendous destructive force. Mm -hmm. And it is that sort of vector between the two that you spend your life trying to edge towards the empowerment for good. But I wonder um, if you think of technology um, when you imagine it and speak about it as more a force for good than evil or a double-edged sword? It is definitely a double-edged sword. More than saying it's a double-edged sword, it depends on in whose hands it is. It's a tremendous empowerment. But depending on who is holding it right now, accordingly it will have its consequences. So who should hold it is a question. I feel the most important thing to be done on the planet right now is to move people from compulsive behavior to a conscious behavior. If only they were conscious, well, a whole lot of these things will just vanish tomorrow morning. It's just that they're compulsive about everything. Their thoughts, their beliefs, their emotions, their ideologies are all compulsive. Because of this compulsiveness, they will do things that you cannot imagine human beings can do to each other. So if I have the impulse to check my phone as you're saying that... <laughs> you're supposed to switch I'm, it yes, off. I'm, I'm the victim of compulsive <laughs> behavior. Um, well, so I, I, I think that this is a wonderful place to actually start a spiritual dialogue, is the issue of compulsive behavior. Because there are compulsions that rule our everyday life in small ways. I know people that wash their hands hundreds of times a day or check their phone. What's their profession? What's their profession? <laughs> <laughs> it is irrelevant what their profession is. Compulsions know of no external reasons, they just are. Um, or, they, or they check their phones all the time. Um, and, and I wonder if you see that behavior as in microcosm, the same kind of behavior that causes people in larger ways to do truly bad things in the world. Does, is compulsion a through line from small to bad? See, compulsiveness is a certain security. When human beings seek security, they will seek familiar terrain. When you seek familiar terrain, you want to go around on the same place, that's compulsiveness. The moment you seek security in your life, you will become compulsive. 
There's no other way. Most of the people I know are pretty insecure, though. So, I, and, Constant and search fact, of security. The people who are here are seeking you out, I think, in part because you are essentially different from that which they know. And so there is also this desire in people to find the new and the different and the thing which makes them a little bit off balance <laughs> so that they can grow, no? Yes, that… Uh, see, within a human being, there are two fundamental forces of nature working. One dimension of nature is instinct of self-preservation, which will always seek security. You want to build walls of security around yourself. The walls that you b build for self-preservation, before you know what's happening to you, they become the walls of self-imprisonment. So, in search of security, people try to create certainty. Certainty is only possible in death, life is never certain. The moment they seek certainty, without knowing why, their face becomes grave. That's a good word, you know <laughs> It's a pose for the grave. So a whole lot of people, if you just go out on the streets, well, most of the people are well-to-do, even those who are homeless are reasonably well-nourished compared to the rest of the world. Pretty well-nourished, I would say <laughs> So people are driving their dream cars with a grave face, like it's the end of the world. <laughs> when you look at them, you think maybe to tomorrow is damnation day or something, because their face speaks like it's… world is going to end. That's the kind of expression they have on their face. Why this is happening is, these two dimensions are not against each other. That is, there is one dimension which is seeking self-preservation. There's another dimension within you which has a longing to expand. It doesn't matter who you are, what you are, you want to be something more and something more. Even if I make you the king of this planet, still you will seek the stars and the galaxies. This is the nature of the human being. So there is one dimension of you which is seeking security, there's another dimension of you which is seeking limitless expansion. So these two things within the human intellect has become a conflicting process, but existentially they are not conflicting because when we talk about preservation or self-preservation, the only thing that needs to be preserved about any of you is your body. Because if you break it, you can't recreate it. So we must preserve this, it's important. But suppose today, I trample on all your thoughts, your emotions, your ideas, your beliefs, your philosophies, everything. I break it right now. What's your problem? Next moment you can create a whole set of everything. But right now, if I step on your thought or emotion, the pain that you go through is much more than when I step on your foot. Isn't it? That is because your identity has become so physical. You have turned your thoughts and emotions, everything like physical existence. Now, everything in you wants to build a wall, not just physical self-preservation, you want to preserve your thought, you want to preserve your emotion. You could as well be in the grave, I'm saying, you'll be pretty well preserved. You could have gone to Egypt <laughs> You know, <laughs> some of them are preserved for a thousand years. 
So preservation is only for the physicality, we have to protect this body, there is no other way. But why should your thought, emotion, ideologies, beliefs need to be protected? Every day if they're trampled down, tomorrow you can come with a fresh set of everything, isn't it so? But no, we have made such investments. And, but one, <laughs> and one of the ways, and this goes back to the beginning of what you were saying about the grave, one of the ways that you play with such ideas is through laughter. That I think a grave guru would be a contradiction in terms. <laughs> um, in fact, the, the, the Irish poet Yeats said, the worst thing about some men is when they're not drunk, they're sober. Um, and if you are if you are too serious and you don't have that playful aspect, I think it is harder to change the way you think and look at the world. And, and I, don't, I don't want, to, I don't want to, to miss that part of the way you presented it because the lightness and the, not lack of seriousness, but lack of, of grave unhumor um, is part of the way I think that we expand ourselves and don't stay in one place. See, laughter is not something that you uh, develop as an attitude. It's... it's just that if you... <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh no, I just think you're making my point. I'm... <laughs> it is just that if you look at life without any prejudice, you can't help laughing at it. Um, the, uh, the second part is I think that, you know, when I, when I speak to our high school students, I always tell them that the indispensable quality to live a good life is courage. Because what you're describing actually takes a lot of courage. It's not easy to be able to change your ideas. It's not easy to be able to change the pattern of your life, and you have to have a certain amount of courage to allow someone to trample on your ideas because fear is a very powerful motivator in that drive to self-preservation. See, uh, we have given lots of significance to various uh, psychological modes and moods that our intelligence takes. We can call it fear, we can call it courage, we can call it love, we can call it hate, but it is just different shades that your mind takes at different times. All this is only because it is in constant compulsive reaction to something around you. In reaction, if somebody is nice to you, you fall in love with them, if somebody is nasty to you, you hate them. Like this, in reaction, so many things are happening. This is a psychological and social phenomena. This is not an existential reality. Love is not an existential no, reality. No. It is a, it is what's happening within you, it's your emotion. What is it? Give me an existential reality that doesn't happen within you. Well, life is. <laughs> You're alive right now, this is existential. Well, it's pretty in you though, the huh? life, right? I mean, I don't know, the, the modes of life, the, the, only, the only thing that I have a... a, a, a a problem with it, the way you said it, is you said it's just the way your mind... And it seems to me that... <laughs> Let me put it ...that love way. is a profound reality in people's lives, as is thought or learning or all these things that may seem transient, but are in fact, I think, deeply rooted in the human experience. 
Let me come to that. So it's like this. If your body becomes pleasant, we call this health. You want it? Hello? If it becomes very pleasant, we call it pleasure. You want it? <laughs> I got a bigger yes for that than health <laughs> If your mind becomes pleasant, we call this peace. If it becomes very pleasant, we call it joy. If your emotions become pleasant, we call it love. If it becomes very pleasant, we call it compassion. If your very life energies become pleasant, we call this blissfulness. If it becomes very pleasant, we call it ecstasy. If your surroundings become pleasant, we call this success. Only for success, only to make the surroundings pleasant, there is a challenge because you need the cooperation of all the forces which are here. But to make my body pleasant, mind pleasant, emotion pleasant and energies pleasant is one hundred percent my business. But right now, what is entirely your business, you're trying to handle it like a social phenomena. So it looks so complicated and all the problems associated with it. But actually, you being peaceful, you being loving, you being joyful, every human experience happens from within you. Whether it happens with external stimuli or its own self-start, this is the question. What I'm asking you is, you remember, maybe you don't, you're still a young man <laughs> See, that was pleasant <laughs> So, if you had a car in 1950s, uh, you would park it on the slope and in the morning you need two people to push the car. Later on in 60s, crank start, you know, you need one more person to help you. Today everything is self-start, you have a remote which starts your car these days. Now you're driving a car which doesn't even start, <laughs> it just goes <laughs> So, it's just upgradation of technology. So I'm saying, would you like your peacefulness, your joyfulness, your love, your blissfulness, your ecstasy, be on self-start or push-start? This is something you have to make up your mind on. So. I'm, I'm going to summarize back to you and you tell me if I understood what I heard. You're trying to return people's almost ownership of their own states of being to inside themselves rather than assume that they have to come from the outside or rely on the outside for them to feel the way they feel. This is part one, is that correct? I would just change one word in that question. It's not a state of being. Me being peaceful is not my state of being. Me being loving is not my state of being. Me being joyful is not made of my state of being. It's just my thought and emotion playing pleasantly. Okay. It's like today, the weather's great. Similarly, my inner climate is doing great right now. This is not a state of being. We must understand this, this being word is being used everywhere as if it's a quantity. People say this being, that being, being is not some kind of a quantity, it's like I'm speaking. This is an activity, this is in motion. 
Only if I speak, there is speaking. Only if I walk, there is walking. Only if I be, there is being. Well, you be. Huh? You be, though, <laughs> right? I can... And, and so I'm not... I, I, I'm not fully persuaded yet by that distinction, but nonetheless, what is interesting in part is that you, you do actually spend an enormous amount of time and energy, though, trying to make the external world more pleasant for people. The best example is the River Project, which is a remarkable accomplishment and, and enormously ambitious and all about making the external world better. So just ensuring that uh, tomorrow our children have water to drink, is it very ambitious? It is today. I mean, you wouldn't think so, but it, well, let me, the, <laughs> no, no, scale, the scale of work that it... That is there. There is a scale because there is a scale of disaster <laughs> unleashed yes. by people. But otherwise, to look at it simply, ensuring that there is water for your children to drink, is it very ambitious or is it very natural? People have become so unnatural that they don't care tomorrow's generation whether they have water to drink or not. So, I think it's very natural, it's very human for you to respond to these things. But the essence of work is not in that. These are unfortunate needs of our times in which we exist. If I was here hundred years ago, I wouldn't be talking about rivers for sure. <laughs> so rivers are not my project. Unfortunately, I see a disaster unfolding, so something has to be done about it. Uh, when I just stepped out, this is a thirty-day journey where I drove 9,300 kilometers personally myself and we had 142 events in these thirty days and 182 media interviews and uh, 162 million people responded. The largest ever movement on the planet, 162 million people responded to this and we changed the policy. The government policy towards rivers has been changed in India because of this rally for rivers. Yeah, I think that deserves, <laughs> yes. No, it's okay. But the important thing is this, why that many people responded? People were asking me, Sudhguru, you got the whole nation together, all the opposition parties, all political rivals, everybody came together for this one thing. I said, see, when I look at it, everybody knew this needs to happen. But they need a fool to bell the cat. They found me <laughs> How is your message, your, your essential message about life, and how to change your life, and how to improve your life, different in different places? Do you go to Beverly Hills and see a different need than you see... In, in a Mumbai. tribal village in India? <laughs> no, not at all. They would like to think they're different, but they're not. They just complicate simple things. If I go to a tribal village, directly those ladies will just come and tell me what's their problem. If I travel to Beverly Hills, they go round and round and round, take three days to tell me what's the problem 
Welcome to my hood, Sadhguru. Um, and, and how do you, because, because I think that this is actually something that, that all of us do struggle with, this compulsiveness, this inability to let go of things that we know on some level we should be able to let go of, how do you advise us or help us to let go of those things that we know are almost haunting us sometimes. So let us understand the fundamentals of compulsiveness, where it comes from. See, everything that's physical in this universe, from a single atom to the cosmic nature of things, everything that's physical is naturally in cyclical motion. In atom, so things going around, in the cosmos it's going around, solar system is going around, our own bodies are cycles, we are born out of the cycles of our mother's bodies. So, the moment you're identified with the physicality of who you are, you're cyclical in nature. What is cyclical is compulsive. What is cyclical has taken a compulsive pattern, it has to do the same things again and again. You try as hard as you want, it will not go. You will give up one and hang on to another. I hope with the Jewish rabbi a joke is allowed. <laughs> the Jewish rabbi actually a joke is mandatory. Yes, so. okay, <laughs> that's good. <laughs> this happened. <laughs> it once happened that Sankaran Pillai was uh, working in an office and his office colleague asked for a lift, a woman, a young woman. So he took her in the car and he was driving and suddenly he became like an octopus that his limbs were all over her. <laughs> so she pushed him away and said, you fool, I thought you were a decent fellow. What are you trying to do? He said, I'm sorry, I gave up smoking. <laughs> so <laughs> if you try to beat compulsiveness with force, you will switch from one cycle to another cycle, another cycle to another cycle, it keeps happening. Fundamental thing is this, you are so strongly identified with your own physical nature, inevitably you will be cyclical, do whatever you want. So this is why what spiritual means is that your experience of life becomes… something within you becomes larger than your physicality. Physicality includes your thought and emotion. This is… Yes, no, I mean you're… I, what I was going to say, two things. First of all, I think when people talk about whether they're religious or not religious, I actually don't believe that's the distinction. The distinction between people are materialists and non-materialists. That is, those who believe that non-material things are real and spiritual realities are real. And the reason that I bring this up in part is because I know that one of the things we had talked about addressing is the question of mysticism. And it seems to me that both our traditions share a belief that the world that you can see and touch and feel is not all there is. And just now, as I understood you, you were appealing to the non-physical parts of ourselves as a sort of antidote to the over-reliance on the physical parts of cyclical compulsiveness. 
See, it's not a question of… Uh, oh, it's just say yes to one of my questions. <laughs> <laughs> tell me, tell me right, you got it right, Rabbi. Okay. <laughs> I'm working here. Yes, but… <laughs> yes, but the thing is… Uh, It's… it's not something that we have to believe in. See, none of us were born like this as we are. We came like this, we became like this. This is just accumulation of the food that we've eaten or it's just a piece of the planet. Most people don't get this point till you bury them. Even that in Los Angeles I feel is difficult because I heard they're being buried in a concrete Vault. So even in burial, you will still not know that you are part of the earth <laughs> So this is something that you gathered. Anything that you gather, at the most you can claim is yours. You cannot claim it's me. I can say, this glass of water is my water… my glass of water. But if I say this is me, you knew, you know that I'm a case, <laughs> you know for sure. So if you say, this is my body, yes it is right now, till we bury you. But if you say, this is me, you're a case. Your only comfort is, everybody around you is a case <laughs> This is how it is in an asylum. The only nutcase is the doctor <laughs> How do you shift that perspective though? How do you learn to see yourself as continuous with everyone and everything? See, it's like this. I'm agreeing with that <laughs> We're good, we're good. See, this is my body, that's your body, distinctly separate, at least right now till both of us are buried. Till then, this is my body, that's your body, very clear. This is my mind and that's your mind, very clear. But there is no such thing as my life and your life. There's no such thing. This is like, I'm sure at some stage in your life when you're in school at least, you blew some soap bubbles, huh? So that's my bubble, this is your bubble, poop it goes. There is no such thing as this is my air and this is your air. This is a living cosmos. You captured some, I captured some. How significant a life you become. When I say significance, not uh, how significant you are in the society or in the world. It's not about that. As a life you become significant because you have captured that much of life which overwhelms the puniness of your own mind and physical body. Within you, the life that you've captured is a larger dimension than the body that you've gathered and the information that you've gathered in the form of your mind. When the life that you are is bigger than your mind and your body, no teaching is needed. You're simply conscious about that, that's all. It's not that you believe that, that's a living reality for you. So my whole work is to
bring people to a dimension of experience where the life that they are is larger than the mind that they are. Life that they are is larger than the body that they are. So you don't have to give a teaching or a, or a kind of a belief system, naturally what is most dominant becomes you, within you. And the way that you bring people to that dimension of being or dimension of existence is... See, as there is a science and technology for external well-being, there is a whole science and technology for inner well-being. The problem that happens in every tradition is, over a period of time, generation after generation, it gathers moss. So much frill it gathered, nobody knows where the skirt is. <laughs> there's there's a... Uh, there was a French Catholic writer, Charles Paguay, who said, everything begins in mysticism and ends in politics. <laughs> And I think that in religious traditions, that's exactly, yes. there's a great deal of truth to that. So how do you scrape the barnacles off the boat or the moss off the tradition and identify that kernel which can actually expand people's sense of what is, what they are a part of, but what they are only a small part of? I think uh, I came with a huge advantage that uh, I'm completely uneducated, <laughs> refuse to be educated. Why I'm saying this is, it is not easy to remain uneducated. Because from the moment you're born, the moment somebody sees a child, all the adults want to pounce upon the child, wanting to teach something that's not worked in their life. Parents, teachers, uh, every kind of people, the moment they see a child, they want to teach the child something. It's very clear, when you look at the child, the exuberance and the joy that the child has and the adults are the way they are, obviously it's not worked for them, <laughs> whatever they know. <laughs> but they want to teach it to the child. <laughs> so I refused this one influence on me. I just remained as I was, uninfluenced by parents, teachers, society, religion around me, politics around me, I kept myself away from that. If you keep yourself away from identifying yourself with just about anything around you, anything, including your genetics, your society, religion, politics, economics, whatever is happening around you, if you're not identified with anything, it is natural for human intelligence to find its way. Nobody has to teach anybody anything. If you just make sure children don't get identified with you, hello? <laughs> that you don't want that, you want them identified with you. Because uh, it's your legacy, it's not a new life. It's your legacy, you want to live after you're dead. You want them to be just like you in so many different ways. If you don't have this problem, if you leave them alone, just nurture them, so that they're not influenced by anything, you will see the world will be full of mystics. I'm not persuaded <laughs> First of all, okay, there, there are three things that you said that I'm not completely persuaded of. One is that you never learned anything. Um, the, when you say you're uneducated, you spoke a language, you knew your neighborhood that you lived in, 
You learned how to eat and what foods to make. You learned lots of things from the people around you. There's no way you could have survived had you not learned. That's one. Wait, I'm not done. <laughs> number two. Number two, I want you to know that when I had a child, I didn't want to teach her the ways that I was that didn't work for me. I rather wanted to teach her the joy that I found in the world and the beauty. And I teach her poetry, and I teach her wonder, and I think a lot of what I teach her expands her. I'm sure I've taught her some things that she would say, gee, I wish you hadn't taught me that. But, but I really do believe that most parents want to teach their children not the things that didn't work for them, but rather the things that they found in the world that are extraordinary and wonderful. No, I, I did not mean didn't work in that sense. See, the only thing about the adults or the parents is, the only qualification you have is you landed here a few years earlier, yes. all right? Nothing else. Hello? Yes. Isn't that so? Yes. You just came here a little early. So what do you know? You know a few survival tricks that the child does not know. If you want to teach them business, you want to teach them how to survive in the world, fine, you know better than them, of course. But as life, the reason why everybody loves a child is because child is a better life than the adult, in every way. Just as life, maybe he doesn't have your intellect, maybe he's not accumulated the nonsense that you've accumulated, Maybe he does not know how to survive in the world, but as a life, he is far more exuberant and alive than you are. That is why it doesn't matter whose child, when you see a child, you light up, because it's life. Even… even the grave-faced people get ignited <laughs> all right? You know <laughs> So, when I say teaching children something that did not work in their life, it is not that your survival tricks did not work, obviously they worked for you, that's what you want to teach because you're concerned about the child's survival, all right? You're concerned what will happen to him, what… this is the only thing. See, when people have children, they only have moments of joy, rest of the time it's only anxiety, what will happen, what will happen, what will happen <laughs> Yes, because it's all about survival. So if you even, I mean I'm uh, trying to uh, look at this comprehensively, even if you… if you just examine the prayers on the planet, this says everything about the adults. Ninety-five percent of the prayers on the planet are just about, dear God, give me this, give me that, save me, protect me. Does it sound like survival or divine expansion? Maybe even five percent is there. Ninety-five percent is only save me, protect me, give me this, give me that, isn't it? This is all survival process, outsourced <laughs> Well, you, I must… I, I admit that you are the first person that, that I know who preaches um, uh, a desire to uneducate people. Um, and, and I understand what you're saying, that there is a pure life to a baby, but I don't believe that that pure lifedness can exist in an adult the same way it does in a child. I said the same way that it does in a child. No, look, you're a man, in all seriousness, you're a man who has political savvy, you've written books, you travel and speak. There's a certain, there is a certain sophistication to your lack of sophistication that I think is quite right. <laughs> 
that is that is seems to be pretty clear. I'm not I'm not suggesting oh you're just like everybody else, but but I also think that maybe you are overplaying the extent to which um, no, let civilization me I, I civilization is a bad idea. No, no. I think it's a, usually a pretty good idea, often. No, civilization is organization of human, basic human intent, just an organized structure. But organization can also get suffocating for the growth… No question. …of an individual life. Yes. When you are five years of age, let's say, when all of you were five years of age, how joyful, exuberant and alive you were, and how you are today, though for all of you I can see life has worked out very well, better than you would have imagined for many of you. In spite of that, compared to how you were five years of age and today how you are, has it gone down or not? See, I want you to understand, with age, only physical agility can go down, aliveness need not go down, hello? So are you trying to die in installments? That's all I'm asking you. It seemed foolish to do it all at once, so I thought, <laughs> I thought I would do it gradually over time. But, but what I would say is, also I'm not sure that I would privilege aliveness over everything else because I might be less alive than I was when I was five years old. But I wouldn't go back to being five because I have so much now that I did not have as a five-year-old and some of it like sad memories, ways in which I've hurt other people, ways in which I've hurt myself, some of it is stuff that may diminish my life but I also think has made me wiser, broader, more empathetic, more sympathetic, deeper, all of those things. So I don't see this as a one-way street. See, essentially, you are trying to, uh, what to say, prescribe some amount of suffering for everybody so that they become wiser. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm saying that it's… I'm saying that a certain amount of suffering is inevitable and once it happens to you, I'm not sure you wouldn't choose it. But I'm not sure that once it happens, when you look back on it, you would say, it didn't actually allow me in some ways to deepen myself. I don't think that that's unfamiliar to your religious tradition. It certainly isn't to mine. No, I was just about to clarify that. When I said I came with an advantage, I did not belong to any tradition as such. I did not identify with any tradition, nor they could put me into any tradition, this is all I did, I did not identify myself with anything. Just to tell you to what extent, I was uh, around maybe twelve, twelve years of age and uh, you know in India, our mothers and parents generally, they're not given to every day profess I love you, this and that, there is no verbal expression of love. They live for us, we know the question of whether they love us or not doesn't arise because their lives are about us. So it never occurs whether they love us, don't love us, such things don't even exist. It is just their lives are dedicated to us, so we know they live for us. So when I'm around twelve years of age, some tender moment and uh, not exactly I love you but in some way she expressed her affections towards me.
I'm in that mode at that time, struggling, you know, that I… I made sure that I don't belong anywhere, but at the same time I'm extremely involved with everything. So I just asked… I, it was a natural question for me. I asked her, suppose I was born in the next house, would you still feel this way about me? She just teared up. I didn't know what I said wrong, I thought I just asked a question. But it… somehow she just teared up and went away. And after ten minutes she came back and she did something very strange. She came and touched my feet and she was all in tears. I didn't know what to say, I said, what did I do wrong? I just asked a question. <laughs> but when I look back later on when things changed within myself, I saw that she saw the point, she got it in such a profound way because it is true that her affections are simply because I am her son, not as a life, not as a… just another being. If I was somebody else, she wouldn't feel the same way. When she realized that, she just kind of, you know, an expansion is also cracking up, you know <laughs> The eggshell has to crack for something new to come out. So, I just kept… see, if your intelligence is not aligned or associated or identified with anything, it is natural for human intelligence to seek relentlessly. Seeking relentlessly means without any purpose. See, the difference between… because you mentioned the word mysticism, the difference between mysticism and other ways of doing things is, everybody is trying to find something, a scientist trying, is trying to find something, uh, everybody, somebody who is walking the street right now is trying to find something of their own needs. Every human being, every animal is trying to find something, maybe food, maybe shelter, maybe whatever. So if you have a torchlight, if you have a… what do you call this? Flashlight. Flashlight. If you have a flashlight, you have focused light, you're trying to find something. You only see this person or this person or this person. What mysticism means is, you blew your flashlight, it became a flare. You saw everything the way it is and after that you are never the same again. Some people uh, in the group to hear you have, uh, have sent up some questions and I'd like to ask you some of the questions that were… Uh, many of which touch on themes that we have talked about. Uh, we talked about death, do you believe… I know you don't like the word… I do, I will die. …that there is an afterlife. Oh, okay. I was… Th I thought you were going to ask me whether I will die or not, I will <laughs> Not God willing for a long time <laughs> uh, See, uh, the question is, is there a life after death? I think some things you know best only by experience. But uh, we've already gone through this. It's very clear that we gathered this body. It's very clear we gathered these impressions of the mind. If we have to gather so much, there must be something more fundamental, whatever it is. Hmm? There something must be more fundamental than physical body and the mental structure. So essentially, the question that you're asking is not about what happens after death, the question that you're asking is, what is the nature of my existence? Is it not very important that you should know this 
here, now, when you're alive. So if I tell you, yes, there is life after death, if it is comfortable for you, you believe me or you will disbelieve me. If you believe me, you will not get any closer to truth. If you disbelieve me, you will not get any closer to truth. All you will have is, you will have a fancy story to tell. Sometimes pleasant story if you believe, if you disbelieve a nasty story about me. But nothing about your experience of life will change, isn't it? You can believe what I say, you can disbelieve what I say. So I never put anybody into that obscenity that they have to believe me or disbelieve me. All I'm doing is, where your experience is, stretching it to the next level of experience. Once you taste the next level, I am hundred percent guaranteed you will want to taste the next and the next and the next. I know this thing about it. Today, millions of people are following without… without promise of something elsewhere, no promise of anything. All I'm saying is, see generally you can gather people if you create an enemy. If I say all your troubles is because of these people, then I can gather all these people. But this entire thing is about there is only one problem in your life that's yourself. In spite of that people have gathered, hats off to the people because that much sense has dawned on the planet. <laughs> and if you had that child before you and you could give them advice for life before they've been educated out of it, what would you tell them? I think the best thing is, uh, I tell you how raise my, I raised my own girl <laughs> So, uh, when she started traveling with me when she was three and a half months old, me and her, just two of us driving a car and traveling across the country with a little baby bundled up and uh, one hand on the thing and my right leg is always heavy. In India we have no speed limits, we are a free nation, so <laughs> This freedom is extended, people drive on both sides of the street and whichever way, they're testing my mystical powers. <laughs> Some of them are busy testing their horoscopes. You know, somebody has told them you live to be eighty, the guy is testing it out today on the street whether it works or not <laughs> All these things. So I'm constantly in new homes and you know, with various families wherever I go. I'm crisscrossing India at that time driving an average of hundred-and-twenty-five to hundred-and-fifty thousand kilometers per year. This is the time I'm building Isha Foundation across the country. So, uh, this girl grew up like this, largely in the car, in many homes. So then I saw adults were so interested in teaching her something. If the child… they see the child, A, B, C, one, two, three, Mary had a little lamb, they will start. I said, nobody will teach her anything, no ABC, no one, two, three, no Mary had a little lamb. Then they said, this girl won't even know how many fingers she has <laughs> I said, I don't care whether she knows how many fingers she has or not, as long as she knows how to use them <laughs> She thinks this is a million, what's my problem? She knows how to use them <laughs> And I don't care whether Mary had a lamb or not. 
So I made this rule, nobody teach her anything. So uh, this girl, see this is the beautiful thing about children, when you don't teach them anything, they're just wanting to drink life. By the time she's eighteen months old, she speaks three languages fluently because nobody's teaching her anything, no ABC, no nothing. And by the time she's four, four and a half years of age, she… I've actually checked this, she remembers over eight hundred names of people, adults, and she thinks they're all her friends. She just sits down and making phone calls after phone calls to all of them and having long conversations with them. <laughs> because she doesn't know that she's a child and they're adult, she thinks they're all her friends. So she grew up like this, I wouldn't have sent her to school but my schedules went crazy. So I put her to a school where there's very little of schooling. <laughs> so uh, she's around twelve, thirteen years of age, something happened in the school that was disturbing for her. She came home and uh, she was a bit disturbed. She came up to me and said, you're teaching everybody so many things, you're not telling me anything. I said, well, I'm not known to do things unsolicited. Now that you've come, let us see, sit down here. And I said, this is all. It's very simple, don't look up to anybody. She looked at me like this, saying, what about you, kind of thing. I said, especially me, if you look up to me, you'll miss the whole point. All you will do is maybe make a photograph of me and nail me to the wall. You have to see me as I am. If you see me as I am, there is much for you. If you look up to me, you'll miss the whole point. And don't look down on anybody. Don't look up to anybody, don't look down on anybody, this is all. Then you will see life just the way it is. If you see life just the way it is, you will navigate your way absolutely effortlessly. At the age of fifteen, I took her out of school and uh, she went into classical dance. Now she's a well-known dancer in India, very <laughs> no education. Uh, that's a time when, uh, you know, all her friends in school, somebody is going to Harvard, somebody is going to Stanford, uh, all this. She said, I want to do law in Harvard. You know? so I said, see, just don't go by this, I'll take you around a journey. So I traveled, I took her to Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, MIT, West Virginia University, Stanford University. I said, see, this is what you got. Just spend time. And then I took her to this very traditional dance school, and the way the children were, she sat there and she wept. I said, what? She said, I'll join up here. I said, it's great because there the monthly fee was hundred and sixty-two rupees per month, <laughs> which is two dollars per month. I said, this is a great choice you made <laughs> And you said you didn't learn anything. Um, I, I, I had asked you this actually earlier because I really want to understand and I don't understand um, the, the conception of God that you have or gods that you have. And we had talked about it before, and I wonder if there's some way that you can explain to us how you think or how you understand God, gods, the divine. Do you have a conception of that? And if so, what is it? See, so when we say conception, we are referring to concepts. When we say concepts, Obviously, they're constructed in our minds, whatever our concepts are. Probably you're referring to 
the thirty-three million gods and goddesses of India. <laughs> These thirty-three million happened when our population was thirty-three million. Since then, because of Western influence and Western education, we've become little shy of creating gods. We must understand this, in, in, in India, in the northern part of India, these terminologies have been lost because of invasions and the kind of beating that northern India has taken over a period of time. But in southern India, still a deity or a what you… See, the word God doesn't belong to India, we don't have such a word actually. There's no the God word anywhere. We call them Bhagwan. Bhagwan means a blessed being. That's the highest word we kind of have. There is no the God word anywhere. So, uh, these deities are referred to as yantras. The word yantra literally translates into a machine or an instrument. So, these are instruments to access different dimensions of life. See, we as human beings, we are who we are today in this world. One thing that's really worked for us is the tools that we created, isn't it? For example, uh, maybe many of you have seen, I think there was an image of that uh, in the video. There is Dhyanalinga which is a… T which is called a temple. It's called a yogic temple or a multi-religious temple. If I… when I'm speaking, if I refer to the Dhyanalinga as a tool, some devotees get very hurt, Sadhguru, don't call it a tool, it's more than our life. I say, that's fine, if you think I'm offending you by calling Dhyanalinga a tool, you do one thing, you come to the yoga center, I'll give you plumbing job, three days. You do it, I won't give you any tools, just with your bare hands, you can use your teeth. <laughs> In three days' time, all your nails will be gone, some of your teeth will be gone. Then if I give you a spanner, will you worship it or no? Hello? Yes. It's the tools. It is the tools. Right now, I'm speaking here, it is the instrument called microphone, which is really speaking to you. Otherwise, if I spoke here, these ten people would hear the people behind would poke them and, what did he say, what did he say? They would say whatever the hell want they wanted <laughs> to the person behind. This is how it happened in ancient times. Because only these ten, fifteen people heard. See, today microphone. Why? Because we can speak. To enhance speech, we got microphone. That is not good enough, we made a telephone. We have vision, so we made a microscope, we made a telescope. Because we can walk, we made a bicycle, we made a car, we made an airplane, we made all kinds of things. If you were made like a tree, rooted to one place, would you have thought of a bicycle, I'm asking? No, because every instrument or every machine that we have created is only an extension of our existing faculties. We have not created anything absolutely new. Everything is just an extension of our existing faculties. So the deities are like this, they're made for different purposes. For every kind of purpose in life, there is one deity. So if you want money, there's one deity. If you want power, there's another deity. You want knowledge, there's another deity. You want love, there's another deity. You want to be fearless, there's another deity. Like this for everything. Just to, uh, you know, cap that, you've heard of Ramanujam, have you? No, the mathematician, there was a movie about him. Yeah. I saw that movie, 
here in Los Angeles, I think. <laughs> you know Ramanujam? So Ramanujam is uh, late nineteenth century and early twentieth century, nineteen… nineteen eleven or nineteen twelve, he died, I think. Very he was young. born… Huh? Very young. Yes. He was born in Tamil Nadu where we are in the southern state. He started pouring out mathematics. He's a devotee of a particular female deity. And he started pouring out books and books of mathematics, no training of any kind. So some English professor identified this and sent him to England, Oxford, right? I think so. So he just poured out mathematics. To what extent means, in 1910, he wrote mathematics or the mathematical structures for black holes, describing black holes, when there was no concept of black hole in the scientific community. See, in science, first the concept, then the theory, then the math. But he wrote the math when there was no theory, when there was no concept, he just wrote the math. He was dying of tuberculosis, he sat on his deathbed and simply poured out bookfuls of mathematics. People asked, where is this coming from? He said, my Devi, my Goddess bleeds mathematics. These are his words. Because he is using the deity to open up a window to the existence. I am a living example of that. Just opening up a window and suddenly everybody thinks you know everything, you don't know a damn thing. You just open a window and you looked out and you're just talking whatever you see there. <laughs> so these deities came up like this to serve different purposes of human life, different energy forms were created. There is a whole science of consecration. It's a very powerful science. You must come and experience, there is one here at the Tennessee Center. If you come to India, it will just blast you in the face, you don't have to believe anything. It is not by belief. Just the very energy there is like that because these are consecrated spaces created for specific purposes. To teach yoga, we consecrate one way, to make other experiences happen. This Dhyanalinga means it's a meditative form. Without any instruction, people will become meditative. No instruction, no previous experience. They come and sit down thinking they will sit for five minutes, they will simply sit for an hour, two hours. Recently somebody came, uh, just before I came here uh, in the month of March. One man came from Himalayas, he just sat down in the temple in the morning when six o'clock when the temple opens, evening eight o'clock he was still sitting there, he just didn't move. So people got scared he may leave his body, they came to me. Sadhguru, this man has not opened his eyes since morning, he just sat there over twelve hours, he has not moved an inch, he's simply sitting there. Then I knew who it is, I said, don't bother. Just go and whisper to him, Sadhguru will see you tomorrow morning, he'll wake up <laughs> So because the energy itself is meditative, you don't have to know anything, it makes you like that. So this is a science that was explored profoundly and we created forms. You won't believe, there are tribes of thieves, you know you heard of the Pindaris and others in India, who are bandit tribes. They have their own god, gods and goddesses. Before they go on their thievery, they have their gods who will assist them in that. They created that kind of energy for themselves. This is like creating any other instrument. You have a science and technology, 
you can make uh, wonderful life-saving instruments out of it, or you can make a gun out of it, you can make anything out of it, you could have made anything out of it. So people made various deities for different purposes in their life. But this thing about this is the god never existed in the country or in that culture. This is why this is one culture which constantly taught people that your life is your karma. You heard of that word, that's become an English word now. Karma means your action. Physical action, mental action, emotional action and energy action, these four dimensions of activity you're constantly performing. Over ninety-nine percent of it is unconscious. See, from the moment you got up today morning till this moment, these four dimensions of activity, your physical activity, your mental activity, your emotional and energy activity, how much percentage of it are you performing consciously? Believe me, it's way below one percent. When ninety-nine percent is unconscious, life will be accidental. When life is accidental, anxiety is natural. When anxiety becomes your way of existence, now fear is the key, you'll just about believe anything. You're ready to believe anything. You're just trying to hold on to something that gives you some comfort, some solace, something to make you feel like you're standing safe. So, all these people are going to go home tonight. What is it that they most either should take away or can do differently even before they get to visit you in Tennessee um, that you think is the indispensable piece of what you have to say to them at least as a beginning lesson for those who aren't further along the path? There are two aspects to everything that I do. One is there is a spiritual dimension which can be transmitted in many different ways. There is a mystical dimension. Mysticism has no purpose. Mysticism is just pure exploration. It has no purpose. But this is the nature of human intelligence. Even if there's no purpose, this intelligence wants to know. This is the nature of human intelligence. If you release people from their daily concerns and fears, believe me, every human being will want to know everything in the universe. Right now, their day-to-day -day nonsense is keeping them busy. Their psychological and physiological drama is keeping them busy, busy, busy all the time. If they had no concerns, everybody would pay attention to everything and want to know everything. Mysticism has no utility. It is simply like pure science, you just want to know. Well, your life becomes profound, but it has no application as such. How can I go out on the street and use my mysticism? There is no such thing. Spiritual process has a certain use to your own emancipation, your own liberation, your own freedom that you achieve within yourself. In that sense, if you must take away, because we are in America, you must take away something <laughs> When you die, what will you take away? I want to know. Hello? <laughs> As you said, we'll find out when we get there, I don't know. <laughs> so, if you must take away, tonight before you go to bed, spend at least twelve, fifteen minutes reminding yourself, you're neither this body nor this mind.
just lie down and just remind yourself, this body is not really you. Do you know, in about… if you live for about sixty years, you're… on an average most human beings are eating anywhere between eleven hundred to fourteen hundred tons of food. So that means even what you think is my body is not this, it's changing every day. New input is happening and old things are going away. So fourteen hundred tons, you don't have to carry that much of weight right now. So obviously what you have as a body right now is just a transient amount of food and soil, isn't it? Hello? So what you think is mine also is not it, it is just all the time changing. So at least try this much. What is my body is not me. What I think is my mind is not me. It is mine right now for use, but it's not really me. Just… if you're not able to do it, just link it to your breath. Inhalation, I'm not the body. Exhalation, I'm not even the mind. Just lie down for twelve minutes and do it. Till the last moment, till you fall asleep. This is something you must notice. Most human beings, when I say most, I'm very generous with the percentage, ninety-nine percent. Ninety-nine percent of the human beings never notice that moment when they're slipping from wakefulness to sleep. They will simply go off like that. If they're alert, they cannot sleep. But there is a way to sleep in an alert manner. If you sleep like that, one thing that'll happen to you is, your sleep quota, if you're sleeping for eight hours, it'll simply drop to three to four hours just straight away. In synagogue, I sometimes see people sleeping in an alert <laughs> manner, actually. It's not… No, that that's is not un uncommon. No, um, no. That comes with practice. <laughs> no, that moment when you're passing from wakefulness to sleep, if you can still be conscious that I'm not the body and I'm not the mind, believe me, something remarkable will happen. I, I also, I want to I wanna acknowledge that it, it is my impulse, and you said this is America, so we have to have a takeaway. It is my impulse to ask you always what to do, and it is your way to talk not so much about the doing as it is about the larger perspective that you're trying to get to, but it's hard sometimes for us to get there without something that we are comfortably concrete. See, what are the instruments to be? That's what people are asking. There is a difference between being and doing. Doing is related to our body or our thought process or our emotion or maybe even the energetically you can do certain things. But being is not connected to any of these things because all these things you accumulate from outside. So a dimension which is not physical in nature, you don't do anything with it, there's nothing to do with it. It is just that if you… in your awareness, in your consciousness, if what is you and what is not you, there is a little space between you and your body, between you and your mind, if a little space arises, suddenly this is the end of suffering in your life. Because you know only two kinds of suffering, physical suffering and mental suffering. Do you know any other kind of suffering? Hello? Even if you're an expert in the field, 
Still you don't know any other kind of suffering, isn't it? Physical and mental. Once there's a little space between you and the body and you and the mind, this is the end of suffering. Only when there is no fear of suffering, will you naturally want to walk full stride, wanting to know every dimension of life. When there is fear of suffering, you walk half steps. You only want to do what is safe. And there is nothing safe in this world except dying. Life, anything can happen <laughs> And on that beautiful note, we want to thank our guest Sadhguru.